So I'm curious, when NASA knocks on your door and says, you know what, Paul? It would be really appreciated if you went to the moon and helped us set this up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think probably not at this point in my life. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to Ohio Sci, where we explore new science and technology being done in Ohio. We talk to the researchers on the cutting edge of biotech, energy, ag tech, and more and let them explain what they're finding, how it works, and where all of these discoveries are taking us in the future. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Ben Finley and Michelle Gatchel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very first episode of the Ohio Sci Podcast, where we explore a great big world of science discoveries taking place right here in the Buckeye State. I'm your co-host, Michelle Gatchel. I love science and I've been following it for years as a journalist in TV and radio, and I hope you enjoy the stories that we're asking about. I am Cynthia Bent Finley. I have mostly been a print journalist till now, mainly covering tech for the past few years, and I have been dying to dig in to the world of science and podcasting. <laughs> so our very first episode, we're going to talk fuel cells. What's a fuel cell, Cynthia? A fuel cell, in a nutshell, is a device that harnesses a chemical reaction to create electricity. That chemical reaction is pretty simple. Hydrogen plus oxygen equals water plus electricity. You might remember from your high school chemistry class, which I kind of do and kind of don't, <laughs> that chemical reactions consume or create energy. Well, smacking hydrogen together with oxygen is exothermic. It releases energy in the form of electricity. Sounds pretty simple. And I do remember my chemistry class because that was one of my favorite classes. But two super abundant gases in and power and water out. I mean, it seems like a perfect situation. And we're going to talk to expert scientist, engineer, Dr. Paul Matter, who founded and runs a pair of hydrogen fuel cell centered companies right here in Worthington, Ohio. He and his companies are working on some world-changing devices that hold the promise to revolutionize a carbon-free energy economy, and we get to hear from him now. Joining us now is Paul Matter from PH Matter and Power to Hydrogen, and he is located in Columbus, Ohio. And gosh, Cindy, I cannot wait to talk to him about fuel cells because truthfully, I know absolutely nothing about fuel cells other than they are about to do and kind of already do a lot of cool things and we're going to hear more about them in the future. I have to echo that. All that I've heard about fuel cells makes me wonder, first of all, not only why do we not hear more about them because they have so much potential to power our future. I also want to know like, wait, how does it do that? How does it? <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> so Paul, thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So we would love to hear you explain to us, just, I guess, start at the very beginning from people who've never heard of a fuel cell before. What exactly is this device and basically how does it work? Yeah, so a fuel cell, it's very much like a battery. Um, it produces electricity, but instead of like a battery where you store the energy actually inside the electrodes of the battery, a fuel cell, you store the energy, you can store it in tanks and it can run off of materials like hydrogen um, is the common fuel cell. And so instead of using something like lithium, which is inside of the battery, you have hydrogen that's in tanks 
and you send that to the cell to generate your electricity. So a way you can think of it is you can store very large amounts of energy with the fuel cell just by having a bigger tank rather than needing to have a larger battery. And that's kind of the key differentiator between batteries and fuel cells. If you want to store a lot of energy in a battery, well, you need more and more batteries or a bigger and bigger battery. With the fuel cell, you just need a bigger tank of gas to store more energy. So how does it make the energy out of the hydrogen that you're putting into it? Yep. So it uses the hydrogen as a fuel and it combines it with just oxygen from the air, but it does so basically electrochemically and you end up making water. So instead of, you know, burning hydrogen to make water and energy, it's doing it electrochemically. And the only product you get is pure water and you don't get any other emissions from a fuel cell. That's why it's a great way to produce energy and power without polluting the environment, without creating any greenhouse gas emissions or other emissions that you get with traditional fuels. And when you say it, the byproduct is water, does is it hot and it comes out as steam into the air or is it like all of a sudden pouring out water? Yeah, so it's, it's humidified air basically that comes out of it. And, and there are going to be droplets of water, but that's really all that's coming out of the exhaust of the fuel cell system is just mm -hmm. that, you know, air and water uh, that were produced, you know, within the, the fuel cell while it's operating. So. And electricity, right? A flow. And well, yeah, the electricity <laughs> is what you're, you're using out of that uh, the fuel cell for to power a motor or um, for other applications. What are some of those other applications? Yeah, so I mean, a fuel cell can be used to power a car, can be used to power trucks. There's development for fuel cells to power trains, provide backup power for hospitals and data centers. It's really good for any application where you need energy storage, but it's particularly well suited for those applications where you need very long duration um, energy storage. Because as I mentioned, you just need a bigger tank to store more energy. So the first application we'll probably see on the road is for long haul trucks because they need to operate almost all day. And that's it's easy to store more energy if you just have a bigger tank rather than if you needed to store a bunch of batteries to power a long haul truck, you would start to cut in to the amount of load that a truck could basically carry. So that's probably the first application we'll see on the road, but we're seeing already applications. Uh, happening in things like warehouses, like distribution centers that operate on, uh, that use forklifts that operate 24-7. That's a great application for fuel cells because basically these forklifts are operating around the clock and if you, and they're inside so they can't run off of traditional fuels uh, because of the emissions that you would get in the warehouse. Um, and if you had to use batteries for these applications, you'd have to swap out the batteries or recharge them uh, multiple times per day. With a fuel cell system, you just simply refill it with the hydrogen and it goes on its way. Now, those are already in a bunch of warehouses as we speak, right? Aren't there some huge retail yep. users using Yeah, The biggest application today is for retail uh, distribution centers, so like Amazon and Walmart. Those are the two biggest users right now of these fuel cell forklift trucks. And it's expected that will grow to other applications and it's already started to happen. 
Are fuel cells also used for things that don't move? I, I thought I heard that Google was powering, you know, buildings with stationary fuel cells. Yeah, so it's it's great for long duration energy storage, and that can include things like backup power for data centers and, uh, you know, warehouses, refrigerated warehouses, anything where you need to store a lot of energy and may need to operate for more than a couple hours uh, to provide backup power. That's where um, fuel cells are starting to be used in stationary applications. I'm just curious because it sounds like, you know, if it's just putting out water, why haven't these been more commercialized up until now? Or why aren't we driving fuel cell based cars? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I mean, the main reason is for it to truly be, you know, emissions free, you have to get your hydrogen from a source that does not release emissions. And to this point, most hydrogen has been produced from natural gas. So you still are producing some emissions during the production of hydrogen. But what we're starting to see is more and more what we call green hydrogen, which is hydrogen produced from renewable energy. And as that starts to proliferate and as the infrastructure for green hydrogen builds, that's when we're going to see more and more adoption. And we're starting to see it in places like Europe and even in California. But uh, as more and more of the electrical grid adds renewable energy, there's going to be more and more opportunity to produce green hydrogen at a low cost and the infrastructure is going to build. Can you talk a little bit about, I've heard about that in, in uh, the media, green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, gray hydrogen. What are they talking about? Yeah, yeah. So there's different colors um, that are assigned to hydrogen, even though all hydrogen is clear, it's the same color, it's colorless. But, uh, but depending on how it's produced, it's usually assigned a color to kind of indicate how clean it is. So gray hydrogen, it, that's the traditional hydrogen produced from natural gas. And when it's produced from natural gas, it produces greenhouse gas, greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, essentially. But there's other types as well. You can produce hydrogen from nuclear energy, and that's called pink hydrogen. You could produce hydrogen from natural gas, but you could easily capture the carbon dioxide that's produced and sequester it. Uh, like, for instance, put it into a cavern in the ground where it's not released to the atmosphere or use it for some industrial process. That's called blue hydrogen. So you can produce the hydrogen from natural gas, but you're not actually releasing the natural gas or the CO2 into the atmosphere. And then green hydrogen, the type of hydrogen my company is really focused on, um, that's produced entirely from renewable energy, and there are no emissions associated with that production. And what do we mean by renewable energy? Are we talking like the big fans that we see out there? Are we talking like a water wheel? Yeah, um, typically we're talking wind turbines and uh, solar panels are the, the two major routes for producing green hydrogen. And the reason green hydrogen is a great fit for the those forms of renewable energy is because they're very, solar and wind are both variable. You know, some days you may have clouds and some days you have lots of sunshine. With the wind, you may have wind for a couple of days and then it's not windy for a day or two. So typically you have to overinstall renewable energy for you know the base load that you want to have the, the energy provide for. So you will end up with periods where you have too much 
renewable energy. And when that happens, you need to do something with that excess energy. And it's very expensive to store all that energy in a battery if, if it needs to be stored for more than an hour or two. And so that's where green hydrogen can come in. You can basically, when you have that excess energy, you can top off your battery but once that battery is topped off, then you can take that excess energy and start producing hydrogen, which can be stored at a low cost in a tank and stored for a very long time. You know, maybe you store it and you use it you know, six months later if you produce it in the summer and you need more energy in the winter. So that's how you know hydrogen can play a key piece in the puzzle of as we travel more and more to renewable energy, it helps to kind of balance that demand and uh, helps level out the grid. When you're talking about supply and demand of renewable energy. So what technologically has changed? Why have we not been storing excess renewable power from the grid in hydrogen for decades now? What what what's new? Yeah. yeah. So I mean what's one thing that's new is the price of renewable energy has really started to drop over the last decade. And so only recently in certain parts of the world is more has there been more and more renewable energy attached to the grid where it's gotten to the point that you have these time periods where there's excess renewables? So if you only have 10 or maybe less than 20% renewables on the grid, you don't get a whole lot of time periods where there's excess renewable energy. But in places like northern Germany, where you're above 70% in terms of the the amount of renewable energy that's attached to the grid, then you get a lot of time periods where you have excess renewable energy and you need to do something with that. And that's why, you know, we're seeing electri electrolyzers being stalled. There's many numerous projects along the North Sea in, uh, in Germany and the Netherlands. And, and that's the reason why, because they have more renewables um, than other parts of the world. So, but also I, I take it that that storing this this excess electricity produced by renewables as hydrogen versus in a battery or a molten salt mine or a water pump or some other crazy apparatus has become more feasible. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And there are, you know, other technologies and ways to store energy long term. Um, hydrogen isn't the only way, uh, but hydrogen's sort of unique because it has numerous uses. And I mean, it's already used industrially for many applications like producing fertilizer, production of chemicals. And since there's applications where hydrogen is already used, this using this green hydrogen can help to decarbonize those applications that produce a large percentage of uh, greenhouse gas emission. So, you know, those those applications can't be decarbonized using electricity or batteries. I mean, you need hydrogen to make fertilizer, basically. It's, it's a chemical reaction. So you need a fuel. So there's numerous industrial applications that need hydrogen or natural gas or some form of fuel. And green hydrogen is really the only way to decarbonize those applications. So there are different methods, but there are some industrial processes where hydrogen is very valuable. And that's that's why it's being used more than some of these other potential routes you mentioned to store electricity. I, I want to take us back a little bit just because in my mind, this is where I'm headed. You know, I'm going back to my like eighth grade science class, right? And you get your chemical chart, right? And you got like H2O makes, you know, hydrogen and oxygen makes water, right? And then the byproduct, the CO2, which is what you're calling, what, which is what is the greenhouse gases that comes out, right? Yep. But is hydrogen just an H? Is it? Yep, exactly. So hydrogen is just, it's two hydrogen atoms, dihydrogen, that's hydrogen gas. So it's H2 
And when you combine it with oxygen from the air, that's how you get the H2O. So okay. you got it. All right. And so the fuel, though, is just a whole bunch of H2. Right. The fuel you're essentially is the H2 is in a tank and you send it to the fuel cell and that's where it gets combined with the O to form H2O. Okay. And how does it, why, again, like, why were we not doing this a hundred years ago? <laughs> What what yeah. what's what's do what's new science like like what's new within that fuel cell that makes these things viable right now? Yeah, so really, it's been a matter of the the hydrogen production. You know, historically, hydrogen was produced from from fossil fuels or you know natural gas, and that was just the lowest cost way to do it. So economically, that's the way it was produced. We didn't really have green hydrogen, you know, why there wasn't a whole lot of push to make fuel cells that run off of gray hydrogen because it's not really clean to begin with. So you might as well have your car run off of, a, of a, another fuel instead of, you know, having multiple steps to get to a fuel that's still not clean. But I think, you know, now, it, now it's coming, there's going to be hydrogen available. It, it was, and the infrastructure for hydrogen is growing. And so that's going to allow more and more cars to be able to operate on green hydrogen. And we're starting to see that there are commercial fuel cell cars available in California and Japan, and they're coming to the East Coast. And I think Ohio will be next in line. Um, there's a lot of potential here in Ohio for hydrogen production, blue hydrogen and green hydrogen. And the are fuel you cells. A fuel cell car? <laughs> I would love to have a fuel cell car. I do not uh, have one yet, though. <laughs> I believe there's a factory going to be making them over on the west side by a company called Hyperion, if I'm not correct. Yep. You, yeah, you know they're, they're planning to make some um, some high-end fuel cell cars uh, here in Columbus. And recently also Honda announced that they'll be making uh, fuel cell powered CRVs up in Marysville. So Ooh, I want it's going to yeah. be uh, a hotbed for fuel cell cars. What different types of fuel cells are there? I know that there's there's more than one kind of fuel cell. If you go to Wikipedia, there's like 15. Yeah, the original fuel cell was called the alkaline fuel cell that was used in the NASA Apollo missions. And the newer type of fuel cell, PEM, it's called a proton exchange membrane, PEM fuel cell. They use a solid polymer with the electrodes. And those fuel cells are used right now in like the Toyota Mirai and the fuel cell vehicles. And then there's the high temperature solid oxide fuel cell that's used uh, by like Bloom Energy. Uh, they can run off hydrogen or other fuels. And there's a number of other industrial fuel cells that aren't as common, but you know those are the three main ones that the alkaline fuel cell, which uses just the liquid um, electrolyte, the solid polymer fuel cell, the PEM fuel cell. And then the last one being the high temperature solid oxide fuel cell, which uses ceramics. And which type do you guys work with? Yep. So we make catalysts for the lower temperature, both the alkaline and the proton exchange membrane fuel cells. Um, okay. And our electrolyzer is based on a hybrid approach. It uses membranes and alkaline. Okay. So one more eighth grade science question. And also because recently there was a crash near me that uh, the truck blew up and they talked about it was hydrogen fuel on this truck. So you mentioned lithium batteries and I know lithium batteries can heat up and explode. What is the difference or the more is hydrogen a little safer and less explosive than the rest? 
Yeah, I mean, hydrogen is flammable just like any fuel. In some ways, it's safer because when it leaks, it actually floats up into the atmosphere just like helium because it's lighter mm -hmm. than air. So you don't okay. get, you know, fuel pooling on the ground that's flammable. But it's also it's typically stored in pressurized cylinders. So you have, you know, an additional safety factor there with the high pressure cylinders. So, yeah, it's just a matter of engineering the safety. And, and that's something, you know, the automotive companies do. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, we t I tell them about fuel cells and hydrogen and they start to think of the Hindenburg, you know, that's kind oh, of the yeah. initial reaction. But, you know, we've come a long way since then. And, and really, it's nothing you should worry about more than the gas in your propane grill or <laughs> the gas in your automobile. It's, it's, it's a fuel just like those. Well, so let's talk about specifically pH matter, what are you guys focusing on in the hydrogen fuel cell world? Yeah, so I think our kind of claim to fame is development of materials that are used in fuel cells. And so we have for a long time have been working on catalysts, which are basically the part in the fuel cell that helps to combine the hydrogen with the oxygen electrochemically. And uh, a big push we've been working on recently is making catalysts that will last longer so they can be used in heavy duty trucks, which need to stay on the road for a million miles. So that's a big area of focus that we're working on. We've also developed unique catalysts that can allow a cell to be both a fuel cell, so generating power from hydrogen and oxygen, and an electrolyzer, which is a device that splits uh, water into hydrogen and oxygen. And so we have a, a single set of cells that can do both using our catalyst. And that's been uh, funded by NASA for an energy storage project we're working on. What would NASA use such a device for? Why yeah, NASA? so... It's very similar to what I was talking about, the uses on Earth. So NASA um, is looking to establish bases on the moon. And what's interesting is on the moon, the night lasts almost 350 hours. It's not like on Earth where, you know, nighttime is about 12 hours. So when, and, and the form of energy that's used on the moon is solar energy. So you have solar energy during the day for 350 hours, but then you need a way to store that energy and basically produce power at night. And that's where the fuel cells are a perfect fit, because instead of taking five tons of batteries to power a lunar base, they can take less than one ton of hydrogen and water and tanks to store energy at night in a reversible fuel cell system. And that's actually uh, very important, that, that mass that it takes to, to launch up to the moon. That's very expensive. It's something close to a million dollars a kilogram. It's not the exact number, but when you think about you can save, you know, several tons of launch weight, you know, you're saving a billion dollars if you can have something that, that weighs less than a battery. So that's their motivation for looking at these reversible fuels. So your device, you, 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 you take it up there, you stick it in the 350 hours of sunlight, in other words, and it, it uses solar energy to take the water that you've got up there or that maybe they could mine from the moon even, maybe? Yeah, no, actually, yeah, so that's a good point. So maybe you take the water with you and then you use the solar energy and the electrolysis to generate the hydrogen and oxygen, but it's also possible another potential use for our systems would be if you mine the water from the moon, because they They've discovered water uh, within the shadow regions on, on the craters on the moon. That water can be mined and sent to an electrolyzer, and you can start producing hydrogen and oxygen on the moon, and you don't have to take the water with you. So now you can produce a very large amount of hydrogen and oxygen 
which is used as rocket fuel, uh, but you can also use the oxygen for life support as well for bases. And it, it could provide a nice way, you know, to get to Mars with lower launch mass and also establish you know, what they call in situ resource utilization. So you can start to generate oxygen locally and have uh, basically oxygen for people to breathe that are staying. On wow, the- that's cool. And, and in the beginning, then you've got your, um, when you get there, you've got your closed loop system, I guess, where you're just taking apart the water and getting electricity out of that situation and putting mm-hmm. more electricity in from the sun and putting the water back together, right? Or- yeah, yeah, that's exactly. The more you can close the loop, then the less mass you need to to take with you when you're when you go to the moon. And it's something also, you know, on Earth, we want to close the loop because we don't want to release greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, the use cases are, although completely different planets, you know, there's similar reasons you want to close that loop, have it be sustainable or to have less launch mass. So um, there's reversible hydrogen fuel cells, which is the taking it up water apart and making it hydrogen and oxygen. Is that right? Yeah. So it's basically a single single set of cells that can do both splitting the water and then also recombining the hydrogen oxygen to form water. So, it, you know, we're probably talking 20, 25, 20, 26. So we're doing the first, you know, missions that have this on it, you know, as a, as a test in space. Yeah, Hopefully, you know, by the 2030, we're talking about using it on the moon and, you know, future missions. Uh-huh. That That's so cool. So many of these um, fantastical space gadgets, you talk, you hear them talked about being used in 2050. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very cool. I mean, yeah, there's a lot that goes into it and, you know, there's things you don't think of when we're just testing it in the lab, you know, that has to survive and be able to handle to go into outer space. Uh, it does take a long time, a lot for these technologies. Um, so, yeah, that's it's not surprising that <laughs> stuff yeah. is pushed out further. So I'm curious when NASA knocks on your door and says, you know what, Paul, it would be really appreciated if you went to the moon and helped us set this up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think probably not at this point in my life. Uh, <laughs> Looking for that kind of travel. So, uh, oh, okay. You never know. Just a quick I, Yeah, there was probably a day when I wanted to be an astronaut, but I think those days have passed. I'm so, excited for Ohio it's and you. Very, <laughs> very fascinating to hear about. And from what I had understood, maybe you can expand on this a little bit more. The the one of the other things that makes your reversible fuel cell a like a commercially viable technology is the fact that you've been able to get the cost of making that hydrogen, making that fuel down to close to the cost of putting gas in your car or whatever other fuel that, you know, a building would would be running or something like that. Yeah. Getting the cost down of the hydrogen is really going to be the key thing. And there's multiple factors that go into that. So, you know, there's the cost of the electricity that you're using is, is a big factor. But, you know, one of the things that we're designing with our systems for hydrogen production is that they can turn on and off quickly and basically capture that electricity when the prices are low. So that's an important thing we've designed into our systems to lower the cost of the green hydrogen. And then the other thing is the equipment itself is expensive. So we're designing systems and using our knowledge of the catalyst to really lower the cost of those components. Because traditional electrolyzers, they may use a lot of expensive components like platinum and iridium that really drive the cost up. So that's something we put a lot of focus into is lowering the cost of those materials. 
and making sure they can capture the low-cost renewable energy. So the platinum and the iridium, is that what the, are they the catalysts? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. In the electrolyzer, those are the traditional catalysts that are used okay. in the electrodes to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. So what do you use, a peanut butter? I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we use, you know, common transition metals. So things like iron and nickel. And then we use a very, very tiny amount of precious metals to help give us the most cost effective approach because you always, precious metals are used in catalysts. Um, and, and you may not know this, but, you know, in your car, you have catalytic converters. And I think about 90% of everything that's produced at some step along the way, there was a catalyst that was used in its production. It's something my uh, professor from Ohio State, uh, Professor Umar Oskan, used to always mention when she was talking about catalysts. Um, so precious metals are traditionally a great catalyst uh, because they don't rust, they don't get oxidized. So that helps them work in the chemical process actually. And that's one of the reasons they're very expensive and rare because they you know, have industrial uses, but uh, it's not helpful if you're trying to make a low cost piece of equipment. So that's something we've really focused on is minimizing the amount of those precious metals that are needed to do this process. So um, kind of last question, in Ohio, because, you know, Ohio, we like to think is the forefront of the world. What other science or uses for hydrogen do you know people are working for? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of interesting industrial processes that people maybe aren't aware of, you know, that can use hydrogen. So the biggest, I think, is going to be fertilizer. So that's you know, production of ammonia, which is used to make fertilizer. And that's what we need, you know, to put on the soil to make crops grow and get our food. So, you know, green hydrogen is going to help make that process basically renewable and sustainable. There's also uses for making things like glass or high temperature ceramics. That process needs really high temperature heat and using hydrogen and oxygen is a great alternative to using natural gas for the high temperature heat to make that. So Toledo is, you know, obviously a hotbed for glass production. And so green hydrogen in the glass making process is something I think we'll see in Ohio in the future. And then steel production. Right now, steel is made from coal, is usually the, the reactant is used with the iron oxide to make iron. But uh, you can use hydrogen and make green steel. And that's something that's being adopted in Europe. But I think, you know, Ohio with the, the steel making roots, it's a, a good potential use for green hydrogen here in Ohio is to make steel. So, and then there's numerous other applications I'm leaving out, but I think those are the <laughs> ones, you know, when we're talking about Ohio, and that applied a lot to what's going on in Ohio with agriculture, steel, glass production. Um, that's where green hydrogen is going to play a role. When you think about it, it's unbelievable the potential it has. You're essentially talking about taking industry from having to grab fossil fuels out of the ground and refine them and then ship them thousands of miles and then put them into your vehicle or your power plant to on-site production and of regeneration. Fuel. Yeah. Yeah. It helps to decentralize potentially, and you can just distribute electricity or have local, you know, uh, renewable energy as your source that makes the hydrogen. But yeah, it's definitely, it could cause a bit of a paradigm shift in, in how that is done, because that's another thing I forgot to mention. I, I talked about, you know, the electricity is important to get the cost of green hydrogen down and the equipment is important, but also the distribution of hydrogen is the other factor. And so, with systems that can be installed on site, you can produce the hydrogen where you need it and you don't have to transport 
a fuel, you know, through a pipeline or on a truck to get it to where it's needed. It can just be made using water and electricity if you have that available on site. So that can also cut back on the cost and make green hydrogen a better option than using a fuel that has to be delivered. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about how the those um, how the federal government is is betting on hydrogen infrastructure on reversible fuel cells and and other hydrogen producing green hydrogen producing technology. Yeah, so there's the the bipartisan uh, infrastructure law was really a, a big deal for the hydrogen industry because it provides incentives for people who are producing the electrolysis systems in the United States. And why that's important is because I think, you know, what we saw with the solar industry is that there were a lot of companies who started making solar panels in the U.S. And then China sort of subsidized the manufacturing and a lot of the solar panels now are produced in China. And they don't want to see that happen with the hydrogen industry. You know, they want to provide incentives because hydrogen is going to be an important part in so many different industries. You know, we want that equipment to be produced in the United States. So they're investing in incentives to help uh, manufacturers scale up here in the U.S. And then also there are these hydrogen hubs that you may or may not have heard about in the news, but that's going to be additional funding to establish the infrastructure for the production of hydrogen and the use in many of these applications that I've been talking And uh, that brings us back to Ohio, I believe. Aren't we hoping to become one of those hubs? Yeah, so I think the last I checked, there were, I think, uh, 33 proposals for hubs that advanced to the next stage. And two of those were in Ohio or involved Ohio organizations. So there's a good chance that Ohio will be selected for at least one or two hubs. Uh, potentially one is more associated with pink hydrogen, and that's more northwest Ohio. And then eastern and central Ohio is associated with a blue and green hydrogen hub um, that's also in partnership with West Virginia and Pennsylvania. So uh, I think there's a good chance, yeah, at least one or both of these hubs could be awarded and there'll be some more funding to help establish the infrastructure here in Ohio. So what kind of science still needs to happen? What kind of research still needs to happen to um, get us to this hydrogen future where power is produced on site and we're using hydrogen I don't know, cars to drive around in. There's a couple things we're doing. You know, as I mentioned, the, the catalyst, reducing the cost there to make the system cost lower. Also just the systems and the, the materials so that they can cycle on and off very quickly. There's a lot of engineering and science that goes into that. And that's something we're very focused on. A third thing, which I haven't mentioned yet, is... It's called process intensification. So it's essentially you have less expensive components in your process to make things work. So what we're doing is traditionally electrolyzers, they produce hydrogen, and then you need like a mechanical compressor to take the pressure of the hydrogen from low to high so it can be stored or transported. So we're developing an electrolyzer technology that can generate the hydrogen directly at high pressure. And that'll help because you could just put that electrolyzer on site and you can instantly have the high pressure hydrogen to fill up your car or go into other processes like production of ammonia without having to use the mechanical compressor, which is inefficient and expensive and requires a lot of maintenance. So eliminating those expensive components and consolidating them into fewer components is going to help bring down the system costs. And that's, that's something we're working on. What other kinds of work has to be done? 
what other kind of gaps are there? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, like automotive combustion engines, they've been around for over 100 years. And, you know, it took a long time for the cost to come down and reliability to increase. And so that's where a lot of the work is now is just getting the cost down, improving the reliability. You can always make them, if you make them smaller, that's beneficial because it's less space on a car, for instance. And it's usually less material that you need to use to make them. So increasing the amount of power you can put through it. Those are really the the key research areas. There's also work involved with, you know, as fuel cells are scaled up, being able to recycle them so that all the components are reusable and it can be, you know, a sustainable solution. Some of the components now, they use a lot of like fluorinated polymers, which can be an issue. Those aren't easy to recycle and do have some harm to the environment. So yeah, there's a lot of different research areas, but it's mostly around those, those types of things. So, okay, Paul, future question. So I have a, ba- a pool in my backyard, in ground pool, and every year we have to drain a couple feet off of it for the winter. Mm-hmm. You know, how far are we from me having, like, right next to my water filter, a little container that can take that water and make it into hydrogen fuel? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> it's something, you know, someday with the systems we're working on for NASA, those, that's a 10-kilowatt system. So that's about the power that you would have for your house. You know, we get, first we're making it work for NASA, and then we got to worry about getting the, the cost down. But mm-hmm. you know, maybe sometime ten years or so, it's something you could have in your house. It can act as a form of energy storage. It can make you know hydrogen for you for your car in your house. So yeah, it, it's possible. It's not outside of the realm of possibilities, but yeah, it's still got some more development until I think we're at that point. Yeah, I'll take ten years. That's all right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be ecstatic to have a generator that would run off of your solar panel and make some hydrogen and make some electricity. Well, you had your rain barrels, right? Yeah. Catching your water and you could just transfer that to energy for the house. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> I like it. Well, Paul, thanks so much for joining us and sharing the science behind the hydrogen fuel and the catalyst that you guys are working on at PH Matters. No, I appreciate it. And thanks, yeah, for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. It's uh, something I'm passionate about and love to tell people. So reach out if you have any questions. Uh, you can visit our website or... Uh, tell know. people your website so they if they want to come check it out. Yep, our website is www.phmatter.com. That's for the fuel cells that we're working on. And then we formed company Power to Hydrogen, and that's power-h2.com to learn about our green hydrogen production. Oh my gosh, Cynthia, that was so much fun talking to Paul. And it really blew my mind how efficient and lack of pollution these hydrogen fuel cells are for our future. I really can't believe it hasn't been blown up before now. I agree. It is the coolest stuff. The the fact that they're going to send it to space. Yeah. That they've got NASA grants and this thing's already underway. That is the coolest. And, you know, Ohio actually sits in a really good spot. Uh, Huge potential to become a hydrogen infrastructure hub. Hyperion Motors, that's another company, building a factory manufacturing cars here in Ohio on the west side. 65-acre campus world's first 1,000 mile vehicle that is powered by electricity from their fuel cell. (laughs) It's amazing. The CEO says when that car arrives that it will arrive with technology for operators to convert water into fuel from your house. 
I love it. I got a big pool in the backyard. I cannot imagine just kind of putting in <laughs> something in my pool and then charging my car. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be cool. I got to tell you, I want to tease our next episode because, gosh, I know you and I got to do a taste testing of some of the first cultured meat in Ohio that actually was grown on Matrix's Matrix to grow meat. And it's amazing to me that someday we could be growing it on, gosh, meat made out of, I don't know, use your imagination. I think the phrase woolly mammoth has, has sprung up into the popular literature already. Oh, yeah, woolly. Can you imagine? I did. We did talk about that, that meatballs were created from woolly mammoth cells. Crazy. Oh, my God. I Not can't even imagine. Those. Yeah, but I want to try them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so whoever created those, look us up. We're going to try it. <laughs> but we got to try chicken made, so to speak. Yeah. And it was fantastic. I mean, it, it tasted like chicken. I hate, you know, you say that about kind of all sorts of meats, but it really did taste like chicken. And the texture even was really cool. So I can't wait for you all to hear when we talk to Taryn Wolf, the CEO of Matrix Food Technologies, about what they do. Thanks for listening to Ohio Sci. Connect with us on our website, ohiosci.com.